are often asked, were you raised in a barn? Well, Jerry Bradley was in the world-famous Bradley's Barn recording studio just outside of Nashville. You see, Jerry's dad, Owen, came to fame as a record producer and his uncle, Harold, is the most recorded guitarist in history. Both in the Country Music Hall of Fame, you wonder how Jerry fits in. Well, we dialed him up just to find out. And boy, did we get some stories. Oh, and by the way, Jerry himself was inducted into the hall as well in 2019. We are on a roll with these Country Music Hall of Famers. Take it away, Cal. And broadcasting once again from high top, the northeast tower of Pete's Castle, where the customer is king, this is Cold Mountain Cal along with my partner brother, Christopher Cheeto Cheatham, and the good doctor producer Steve Thomason bringing you another episode of The Crossing, where the music meet some memories. Chris, it's been a great couple of weeks. We've had some great guests and we got another one lined up tonight. As terrible as uh, 2020 has been. It's been good to us. It's been very good. <laughs> it has been very good to the cross and the little podcast we've got here. I And I, I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, uh, so the, I've sent Chris up to the top of the Oliver Douglas Green Acres telephone tower and he's <laughs> cranked up <laughs> Once again, we pointed those antenna waves up toward Music City, Guitar Town, Nashville, Tennessee. We already had the coordinates already dialed yeah. in. I didn't have to change them. Yeah. So, I mean, it was already pointed that way. So, we yeah. set the filter on Hall of Famers, so it only picks up Hall of Famers. It only picks up <laughs> Hall of Famers, and we've got another one tonight. I'm going to get Steve to fine-tune uh, the wavelengths, and we should be dialing in Nashville just here in any second. I believe we got him on the line. All right. How about you, Mr. Jerry Bradley? You got a copy on this podcast called The Crossing, sir. Yeah. I All right. Heard, I heard around. Such a pleasure to talk to you tonight, sir. Good. I thought I saw that green light, but it was a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first and foremost, hope you're doing well during all this COVID stuff. Hope the family's well. Yeah. I found out my wife was a real good cook. Oh, so the wife's pretty good cook. Put any uh, extra right. extra pounds a of, on? A lot of chicken. No, a lot of chicken. <laughs> well, Chris, when it comes to Mr. Jerry Bradley, there's a long list of accolades that he holds. Let me look at my list here. He is a uh, retired head music executive, RCA Records, Nashville Division from... I think it's 73 to 82. He'll probably correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm, sometimes That's I right. am wrong. All right. That's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> and he was uh, head of the Opryland Music Group. He was a CMA board member and past president in around 1975. Spearheaded the event called Fanfare. Did you know that? Didn't know that. Yep. And, About 30-something uh, years. Yeah. Wow. And uh, most recently, he is inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame class of 2019 with ray stevens and brooks and dunn what a, right. what a trio <laughs> and, and before we even get started thank you so much for your service to this great country of ours by the way i say you were in the army yeah so let's start you were born in nashville straight up yeah born in nashville uh moved to california when i was about five, five six years old my daddy was in the merchant marines Stayed out there two years and uh, then came back, uh, I don't know, probably 1945, something like that. Yes, sir. And let's preface that as your father was the great Owen Bradley of Decca Records and music guru of Nashville back in the day. 
Yeah, I was born into it. I was. You, you had know, no choice. I was lucky. I didn't didn't have nothing to do with that, but <laughs> I was I was born into it and grateful for it. Uh, I didn't really know what the hell I was going to do till I got out of the army, and uh, yeah, he picked me up at the airport when I was coming back. And he said, "Well, what are you going to do?" I said, "Well, I." I don't know. I think about either selling airplanes or big trucks or getting that damn business you in. <laughs> he, he laughed, and uh, anyhow, that's uh, that's where he uh, helped me set up a publishing company, and that's what happened. I started out with a little company called Forest Hills Music. Me and Harold, Harold Brady, my uncle, uh, we had that for... Well, still got it. Uh, I got the publishing company, but uh, anyhow, it's just on a shelf somewhere. But, uh, <laughs> had a few hits and learned the business. And, uh, you know, then my dad started Bradley's Barn, and uh, I thought we was going to raise cows, to be honest with <laughs> you. His daddy raised cows, so my daddy bought a farm down near Old Hickory Lake and I I just I didn't know what he bought it for. I figured he was just gonna raise cows and uh-huh. you know, so uh, one day he told me he thought he might make a studio out of it. He had sold a Bradley Studios down on Music Row. So uh yeah, we uh went up there and had a hired a bulldozer and moved the Knock the ends out of it and move the manure out. <laughs> well, Jerry, you you went to high, you went to high school there in Nashville as well, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess I went. I guess I did. They went to a couple of them. I went to Hillsborough and I went to MBA. Oh, did they? Uh, <laughs> they transfer you to a different uh, high school? Well, I thought I think I had something to do with it. They didn't like the way I wanted to run it. You know, so they asked me to leave, so I went over to Hillsborough and graduated. But I had a good time, and uh, I learned a few things. And, uh, you know, I, I had a good time. Sometimes in my life I lessons. I had a good time. In fact, I've had a good time all my life. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so you right out of high school, you went into the Army. Is that correct? Yeah, I... <laughs> Man, I'm so full of stories. I, I tell you. That's why we called I, you. <laughs> my dad loved Old Hickory Lake. And Burl Ives came to town. The Burl Ives. Uh-huh. And he, wanted, he bought a boat. And he wanted to get it a haul to Pahokee, Florida. And so uh, my dad got Mel Tillis and asked Mel, songwriter, he asked Mel if he'd haul the boat down there. And, of course, Mel would because he wanted to get that burl lives cut. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I was about 18 or 19 years old. And he said, Jerry, you want to go with Mel and pull that boat down there? And I said, yeah, I'll go. So we go get a trailer and hook up a, about a 24, 25-foot little cruiser, day cruiser. And... Then Mel take off to Pahokee, Florida. 
which is uh, Mel was from Florida, wasn't he? Down He's from Pahokee. Oh, okay. Pahokee, and we drive down there, and it got real foggy on us. It's about a thousand miles, nine hundred some miles. We got down close to there, and it got foggy. <laughs> Mel wanted to stop, and I wanted to keep going. And finally, we pulled in a filling station, and Mel fell asleep, and I sat there just looking at the steering wheel waiting to go <laughs> and uh <coughs> finally mel woke up and it's still foggy and i said mel we're gonna keep going we got a long way to go so anyhow i put it in gear and pulled out of the filling station we didn't go a hundred feet till the fog it wasn't no more fog we were sitting next to you know, a canal or yeah. pond or something drawing off the fog. And anyhow, we went on down there and Mel, Mel wanted to drive when he got to Pahokee. And anyhow, Mel put his arm out the window and he was waving at everybody. You know, <laughs> hey, this is a country boy, come back to Pahokee. <laughs> anyhow, we went down there and uh, Pahokee was only... It was like a cross with buildings on each side, all four sides. And Burl told him, don't tell anybody. I don't want to draw no crowd. And we got down there, met him at 12 o'clock. Anyhow, out out the door (laughs) came Burl. And out the door come tons of people, man. (laughs) Bell had done told them. He let the cat out of the bag. Burl Eyes was coming. <laughs> so anyhow, we went on down, put the boat in the water. We get ready to take off. And uh, the constabule, as Burl called him, the constabule was standing on the dock. And Burl hollered at him and said, Constabule, you want to go? And I had it in gear. And I was pulling out and the constable just flew onto the boat. He just jumped. <laughs> He's ready to go. Ready to go. We carried him all the way to West Palm Beach. They had us a condo over there. But to make a long story short, I got a call that the secret, not the Secret Service, but the Selective Service was looking for me because I they were drafting me into the army. Oh my so gosh! I had to come back. <laughs> so uh, anyhow. Well, that was a heck of a heck of an end of a thousand mile trip with Mel Tillis, huh? Yeah, they went on to uh, the Bahamas, <laughs> and I found out later that Mel got a, a tooth that was going bad, and uh, they filled him up full of bourbon <laughs> and took a pair of wire wire pliers and pulled his tooth out. That's what they told me anyhow. So. But anyhow, I had many, many experiences of crazy things with uh, different people. But that one was uh, that one was extraordinary, uh, complicated, and fun. Hey, if we don't get another story out of you tonight, that one that one was pretty good right there. <laughs> now, where were you stationed at in the army? Uh, Columbia, South Carolina. South Carolina got hot there in the summertime. I bet, didn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, but I think I was there in the wintertime. But anyhow, I got, I got through it, and I got through it. To, you know, I remember hitchhiking home. Called a, I, I took a thing of albums. I had 
somebody send me some albums from Nashville and I'd go out there on the highway and I'd hold a, I remember it was an Ernest Tubb album and I'd hold it up and stick my thumb out and somebody stopped and they'd pick me up and they carried me all the way to Chattanooga and I caught uh, another ride from Chattanooga back to Nashville. Did it in two rides, uh, <laughs> holding up out country music albums. Country music well, I, got you home. I tell you, yeah. if I was able, if I was able to get out of Columbia, South Carolina and find myself back in Nashville, I wouldn't go back. <laughs> well, I, I I had to go back. <laughs> <laughs> that had dragged me. So you told right. your you told your daddy Owen that you wanted to be in the music business, and y'all set up a little publishing company. Yeah. Now how did? And you were with your uncle Harold, who, by the way, folks, was the is the most, according to, as far as I know, the most recorded guitar player in history. Yeah. So y'all set up the little publishing company. Did you have signed on some songwriters, or how was that working? Yeah, I had. Jan Crutchfield, and he wrote for me. Gary Stewart, uh, he was a great uh, uh, saloon bar. Gary singer. Stewart was He's awesome. Honky tonk. Oh That's yeah, the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. I had Gary, and uh, yeah, I made a living doing that. And then when my dad built that studio, I, he taught me how to mix sessions, and I'd mix mix sessions and uh do some publishing try to get some songs cut here and there now, jerry how did yeah. your um how did how did your daddy get into the music business well uh uh he lived in a town called westmoreland tennessee and a, a little boy threw a mud ball at him hit him in the eye <laughs> And that kept him out of school, and his daddy bought him a ukulele, and he learned how to play that, and then he went from that to piano, and I don't think dad went past the eighth grade, seventh to eighth grade, and uh, he played piano by the ear, and uh, he... uh, he around Nashville. He, you know, when he was a teenager, he was playing honky tonks and uh, little gambling places here in Nashville. And uh, I'm talking about 15, 16 years old. Rough places. And, uh, anyhow, then he went to the Merchant Marines, and uh, when he got there, I. He started out playing trombone and bass drum, and he wound up leading it before he got out. And he came back to Nashville, and he told my mother that they were looking for, that uh, he was looking for a job at WSM. And so he went up to WSM to see if he'd get a job, and they said, no, they weren't looking for a piano player. They were looking for a trombone player. So he went out and bought him a trombone, and we had a little three-bedroom shack house on the street over here called Lucille Street. And my mother couldn't figure out what was going on because he went through the house playing that trombone. He bought him a trombone so he could learn how to play it and go get a job at WSM. The end of that story is he wound up leading the band at WSM. And 
he was cutting records for Decca Records uh, uh, here in Nashville, and his boss was a guy named Paul Cohen. He'd come town. Daddy'd get the people up, and they'd go cut some country records. And anyhow, uh, Paul made friends with somebody in Texas, and they were Paul wanted to move Nashville recording to Texas. And my dad told him, said, no, I'll build you a studio and do it here if you'll stay here. Yeah. And so Paul agreed to stay here. And my dad, he cashed in or borrowed against his insurance policies. And Harold participated by playing in all the sessions that they got for free for a year. And, uh, uh, Paul, uh, I, the story goes and I can't verify it, but I'm pretty much sure it's true. I've heard it too many times, but <laughs> Paul never did put no money in it. But anyhow, it took off like gangbusters and, uh, it just worked out. And then, uh, after so many years and I don't know how many years he had it, but Columbia, uh, records came in and bought it and, then uh, he had to wait two years, and he couldn't build anything in the county. So uh, he uh, uh, he waited two years, and he went to another county and built Bradley's barn with uh, me. Now and, that uh, that first that first studio that was a Quonset hut, I guess. Well, that wasn't the first one. He had another one. Well, that was about the first. Big one. Uh, so it was about the about first, second, about the third or fourth one that he built. Uh, he built one over off, off of uh, Third and Lindsley, I think the street was. And uh, he just signed. He learned about real estate and leases. He just signed a year's lease. They went in there and acoustically fixed it the way they wanted to. And then the guy wanted to raise the rent, and so he just moved. And then he moved over to Belmont area, and uh, anyhow, he moved around. He built, he built probably about five of them, and enjoyed building them too. It was each one was a little bit better. So uh, he liked a dead studio. He liked, you know, he, he he knew what he was doing. You go back and listen to Brenda Lee or any of his old records, and. Uh, they sound like it was made yesterday. Sounds like your daddy was a, um, a heck of an entrepreneur with a passion for music. He did. He didn't. He, he Later on, these guys come in, go tune the studios, and he, he never would hire one. He said, I just I can tune it with my ears. I know what the hell I want. <laughs> so, so, when you got, so when you got home from the Army, I mean, it, he didn't have no problem with you rolling into the music business. I don't know. I don't think he had any problem. We, I was typical, all oh, teenager and hellraiser or whatever you do. Had a nineteen fifty Ford Lord and mm. had it with lake lake pipes on it. And I thought I was James Dean or somebody. <laughs> Anyhow, we went from me uh, drag racing and doing all kinds of crazy things. He. I kind of settled down, and uh, we became more like, when I got into business, 
we became uh, like uh, brothers. I, I respected him so much. And, uh, you know, I tell everybody, they'd say, well, I went to lunch with your daddy. And I'd say, oh, you did? I said, did, uh, did you learn anything? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, did, you, did he tell you anything you didn't know? Well, yeah, I guess he did. And I said, well, I said, if you listen to him, you, he'll educate you. And sure enough, uh, I've, I've used that around town. I, anybody went to lunch with him, and he, he'd bring you up to date on about anything you wanted to know. And he'd be right. And, uh, you know, I, I remember I was sitting behind the console one day. And he, uh, I was playing with the pot on the uh, uh, on the guitar and he asked me, he said well how do you think that sounds Jerry and I thought damn, Owen Bradley asked me <laughs> what I thought Jerry Bradley has arrived I have arrived, I really <laughs> did that was a turning point in my life and uh, but anyway, I had several lows and uh, you know, I appreciated every one of them too. Uh, it was a sad day when we lost him, but yes, sir. Anyhow, he 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 was a good one. <laughs> well, folks, we're just getting started. We're here with the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame record executive, Mr. Jerry Bradley, who has graced us with his presence tonight on the show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after you hear a word from our sponsors. You are listening to The Crossing, where the music meets the memories. It wasn't God who made honky-tonk angels. As you said in the words of your song, too many times married men think they're still Hey, this is Joe Bonzel with the Oak Ridge Boys, and you're listening to Chris and Cal, along with producer Steve. This is The Crossing, where the music meets memories. We're not sure what is more famous, the Bully Burgers or the Siren. Of course, we're talking about the Dawsonville Poo Room, located on Bill Elliott Street in Dawsonville. Whether you want to stop by for a game of pool or enjoy one of those world-famous bully burgers, be sure to take a gander at all the photos and news clippings from racing history in Dawson County. From dirt tracks to super speedways, it's all captured on the walls of the pool room. Dine or take out, that's a Dawsonville pool room where the siren sounds on every Elliott wind. You probably haven't checked the propane tank lately. It's when the pilot light goes out that you finally notice, right? And now you're in a bind. Who do you call? Mills Fuel Service right now. Mills Fuel has provided North Georgia with fast, courteous service and clean propane for over 50 years. So don't let the tank hit rock bottom. Call Mills today, 706-265-3394. Three locations to serve you coming Dawsonville and Dahlonega online at millsfuelservice.com. Buell Martin Barbershop is your one-stop barber for all your men's grooming needs. Stop in for that Buell special. You'll get a straight razor shave and a haircut topped off with your choice of either witch hazel or vitalis. And for all you pickers out there, Buell stocks some strings and picks for them guitars and banjos. 
That's Bill Martin Barbershop on Highway 9 in South Coal Mountain. If you see Piedmont, you done gone too far. Drinking was forbidden in my Christian country home. I learned to play the flat top on them good old gospel songs. Then I heard about the barrooms just across the Georgia line. Where a boy could make a living playing guitar late at nights. Had to learn about the ladies too young to understand. Why the young girls fall in love with the boys in the band. When the boys turn to music, the girls just turn away to some other guitar picker in some other late night place. Yeah, held on to my music, let the ladies walk away. Took my songs and dreams to Nashville, then I moved on to L.A. Up to New York City, all across the USA. I've lost so much of me, but there's enough of me to say that my home's in And we're back. We're uh, talking with uh, record executive Mr. Jerry Bradley, who's all the way in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, telling us about the education that, that he had gotten from his father, um, who had paved, a, apparently, a, an amazing path for him and the success that he's had in the music industry. And, and Jerry, I could say we're being educated tonight as well. Yeah. So, Jerry, uh, with this... The, the whole Bradley Bradley's barn thing. I knew you were in it from like the ground up. He had you sweeping floors and helping construct it and stuff. But do you remember like I know you? And then you said you started doing the mixing part. But do you remember like your first big, I guess, session or project that that really involved you and something that produced some some hits? Well, we uh, we got it started and it took him. He wasn't going to start it and then just come up here. He, We got it started, and it was two years before he came. Yes, sir. And he introduced me to a guy named Charlie Talent, and Charlie was a he, – he could do all the wiring, and he could mix sessions, and he was a little more educated than I was, but he introduced me to Charlie. And Charlie and I started doing sessions, and for some reason, and I can't tell you why, but uh, – Rick Hall down in Alabama was doing some things, and they got the word that this place called Bradley's Barn in Mount Julie, Tennessee, was doing great, doing good. And all of a sudden, uh, a lot of musicians from uh, uh, Muscle Shows and uh, somewhere down in Florida, I don't remember the place, but they would come up here, and hell, they would play wasn't playing country but uh they were playing rock and roll and had horns you know and hell they'd work all night they yeah and then that word would would go to uh i don't know how the word got out really but it got out and all of a sudden we had uh uh ann and sylvia 
and I can't think of the other guy's name from Canada. We had all kinds of people that were uh, the Who. We had the Who, and people were finding out about us all over the world. Hell, we were doing people from all over the world. Yeah, and uh, you know, I all I knew to do was just go in there and mix them. I, it didn't make any difference really to me. <laughs> uh, I wasn't impressed by them. Hell, I, I knew Red Foley and uh, Mel Tillis. So. <laughs> Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot didn't have anything on you, did he? Yeah, so anyhow, we we did we did sessions for about two years of uh, just people, you know, some people we knew, some people we didn't. We cut one of them we did. I did Joan Baez, and, uh, you know, I, it's the same thing as if I'd have done uh, Mary Lou. I mean, it didn't make any difference. We just went in, recorded our songs, and had a good time. You know, the, the good ones are a lot of fun. The bad ones are a lot of work. Exactly. But, uh, anyhow, we did that for two years, and then one day I was down at my office in Nashville, and it was on a Saturday, and a, uh, a thud came through. I had the window up, and a thud came, and I looked down, and I couldn't figure out what the heck it was, and it was a rock. And so I, I went back. I didn't do nothing. I didn't go to the window nothing. Somebody just threw a little rock up there. All of a sudden, another one came in, and I went over to the window, and it was... Kitty Wells' uh, son-in-law, Johnny Sturdivan. And Johnny had threw a rock. He wanted to come up and talk to me, so I went and opened the door, and he came up. And he said, Kitty wants to record up at the barn. My dad was out of town, and I said, okay, I need to check with Owen, because Owen hadn't recorded up there yet. And uh, so... Uh, Anyhow, uh, I told him I'd get back with him, and, and I got his telephone number, and I called my dad and told him, I said, Kitty wants to record up at the bar. And he said, well, that's all right. And I, I, he, didn't, he didn't understand. He thought I was delivering the message that Kitty wanted to record. Right. He didn't realize it was going to be his first session at the barn with one of his DECA uh, artists. So anyhow... Uh, I, when he got back to Nashville, I called him on a Sunday night, I believe it was, and I said, now, she's going to want to record at the barn. You did understand that. No, I didn't know she wanted to record at the barn. He said, that's okay. He said, call Charlie and tell him, make sure all them damn machines are working good. <laughs> Tune them up. So anyhow, I called Charlie. And, yeah, he was the first, and then Burl Ives, Red Foley, Dinosaur, Conway Twitty, uh, Ernest Tug. The word uh, got out, didn't it? Yeah, Rocky Top. I remember cutting Rocky Top. You know, I, yeah, the word was out, and we were off and rolling. And, uh, you know, that worked for several years, and, you know, kind of, I'm sure that's. I don't really know how I got the job with Chet. Uh, are you ready to go there? Oh, yeah. 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 Chet Atkins. Well, I don't know how I did. I I think I was making a little noise, 
and people were telling him, you know, I don't really know, but anyhow, he called me one day, and my secretary, Cecile, I told her, I said, he don't ever call me, I call him, I don't understand what's going on, and I said, I bet he can go off a bench job. And uh, so anyhow, I made an appointment, and I went over to see him. And uh, anyhow, he he said, you know, I think you'd make a good assistant over here in the A&R department. And I said, well, I'm interested. And uh, anyhow, he, uh, he offered, well, he offered me a job, but he had to call his boss, guy named Harry Jenkins, and Harry had to come in and do the official interview with me, so I didn't know Harry, but Harry came in, and we sat down, and uh, Harry, he, uh, he offered me, I remember he offered me uh, $20,000, and I said, well, that's, I'll, this is back in whatever year it was, but he, I said, well, that'd be all right, but next year I want to get uh, 25. And Harry said, well, I'll pay you 25 now, <laughs> right now. And I thought, that like scared me to death, man. I thought. <laughs> you done a, undersold that was, yourself. That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> but you so still had to go, then you had to go back and tell Mr. Owen you weren't going to be working for him, I bet, though, didn't you? Well, I, I called him and I told him, uh, and. I told him, I said, Chet offered me a job. And he said, hell, you got a job. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I know. He said, well, if he offers you a... a Advancement. Yeah. He said, you might think about it. And I said, okay. So when I went back, uh, talked to her, I, I told him, I said, now, I'm going to take this money, but I want to... I want to have a chance at advancing, and anyhow, I, I I took Danny Davis's place, moved into his office, and Felton Jarvis, who cut Elvis Presley, was a good friend of mine. And uh, anyhow, that uh, I went over there, and you know, kind of, you know, it's I'm not really proud of this, but it had to be done. The, the roster was rather mature you had to trim some fat yeah i had to you know everybody don't last forever they think they do but you know when you're you're working for a big corporation you know and anyhow i I knew enough about business knew we had to sell some records or i'd be looking for a job so uh, we got some new people in there you know some of the old ones understood some of them didn't i guess but anyhow we were realigning his roster and got bill sap from alabama and gary stewart and you know took took dolly and Waylon and you know me and joe galani were sitting there and we didn't know why we was putting dolly parton on the damn product there wasn't but one dolly and we were going to claim that, so we claimed that. And then uh, Waylon, hell, there wasn't but one Waylon. And I told Joe, I said, we just claimed that one too. <laughs> Might as well. Well, you didn't have, so uh, we, 
you didn't have Porter knocking on your door trying to get Dolly back, did you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Um, that was that was that was a rough part right there. Yeah, Poor, that was that was she, part of making that big she, money, though. She told me, she told me one time. She said, "If you guys would understand uh, and treat me like a female Elton John," he said, "You could make some money." And that stuck with me, and uh, I used to tell my tell Chet because Chet wanted her to get rid of her wigs and get rid of some of that stuff. Some of the flash. Chet wasn't too flashy, yeah. was he? I don't know. You know, really, I didn't communicate a whole lot with him. I just went in there, and he really didn't want to do it. He wanted to go on a tour on the weekends, and he, you know, he. He never bothered me. He, you know, he didn't say, "Hey, let's go over yonder and let's do that." I, you know, I pretty much uh, reported to New York, and uh, off we went. And a guy up there named Bill Elberman, he believed in me, and you know, hell, I'd tell him what I was going to do, and he'd say, "Go do it." And I read. So, so, I read somewhere that uh, you you were kind of quoted as saying. Chet brought me in to kind of handle all the corporate stuff while he went out and he'd, he'd carry him to lunch. Yeah, he did. They would come in town and I'd pick them up at the airport and bring them back over to RCA. And I'd go in my office and Chet come in about 10, 30, 11, and they'd all go up to his <laughs> office and sit up there and talk. And I'd work and then they'd come back down and Chet sometimes just go home. I'd take them to dinner. You know, now, now if, if me and Chris was to been rolling in there as big record executives and stuff back in the day, where would you have carried us to lunch at down there? Where would I took you? Well, they didn't have hot chicken, so I had to eliminate that. Took you over to Ireland's. Yeah. Ireland's, they had steak and biscuits and ham biscuits. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> that's probably where I'd take all Mario's. If was, I want to spend, so if you're really going to do me some favors, yeah. I took you to Mario's. Oh, we've been all about that. We'd eat at Mario's up. <laughs> <laughs> what about, uh, was it, there was another one, uh, Line Balls or something like that? Was that the name of it? Line Balls was, yeah, that was that was more or less a beer joint. Okay. Well, we'd fit uh, in there. We would have fit in there, to too. Do. Yeah, <laughs> we wouldn't have been too hard to fit in there. Take you down to Skull's. Skull's Rainbow Room. That's where they drank and had strippers. So, oh yeah, that's a long time ago. Too bad it closed. Nothing like that corporate expense card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. RCA will pay for that. Just line well, them up. That, they did. <laughs> I never, I never spent none. I might have just took you to a sandwich shop. There you go. You got on me. Now, were you doing any producing? You were still producing back in those days, too, right? Uh, well, uh, I, first guy I cut was Nat Stuckey. That's Chris's and, man. Uh, I told him tonight. I four sides on him, and I went in my office, and I played him, and then I called Chet, and I told him I'd cut four sides on Nat. He won't hear him. He told me to bring him in, and I brought him in. I, I played him. Uh, all four of them. I liked 
number one and two. Well, he told me he liked three and four. <laughs> and I went back to my office and I thought, gee whiz, what am I going to do? Am I going to put out what he likes or am I going to put out what I believe in? And I made a decision right there that I, I was going to put out what I believed in that if I didn't make it, it was going to be because of the decisions I made, not the decisions that he made. And those thoughts, you know, that's, that's, that's exactly what I thought and what I did. And from then on, I didn't blame no more. I just put them out. <laughs> so uh, just, just out of curiosity, what were those two songs? I, You know, I really don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> Chris is a big Nat Stuckey fan, and I told him uh, that you used to produce him. That he was what well, uh, Plastic Saddle, I think, was the name of that song. He, right. he, he Chris <laughs> I, loves that song. I love that song. Well, I I love Nat Stuckey, man. He was Felton used to do him, and then Felton died, and uh, that's how I wound up with Nat. And boy, Nat could sing. He could sing in any key. He could sing any song. He could sound like Frank Sinatra, or he could sound like uh, Nat Stuckey, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I really did like him. And uh, anyhow, we we had a lot of number one records, uh, uh, and I enjoyed cutting him too. Now he was so easy. Oh yeah. What about your studio musicians? Who were some of your uh, go-to guys oh, that you'd use? Well, David Briggs was from Muscle Shoals. And he was piano player, and he wanted to come up here. And he would call me, and I would try to encourage him to come. And he was scared to death to leave Rick Hall down in Muscle Shoals. And finally, uh, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't with RCA. I was still up at Rayleigh's Barn. I right. told him, I said, David, you come up here. I'll help you all I can. But I don't know how much that will be, but I'll help you. I said, people are calling me and want me to tell them who to hire when they do a session. And I said, I can get you to be the leader on these sessions if you want to do that. So he and Jerry Kerrigan and Norbert Putnam got in a car. And I, my daddy had an apartment house over on Music Road. And I was living there. And it was on a, I don't know, Sunday or Saturday or something. In rolls a car with a U-Haul in on the back of it with Briggs and Norbert and Jerry Kerrigan in it. And I had a vacant apartment I could put them in. And we unloaded what little bit of furniture they had. You had to walk around, go up some stairs. And anyhow, we just... It was down, it was on the first floor, but we still had a couple of stairs go up. I just, li we just lifted the windows up and stuck everything <laughs> through the windows. And they moved in there and stayed about, oh, about 30 or 60 days. And David, he wrote songs for me, and I gave him $50 a week, and I was making $75 a week. And I told David, uh, I'd get him all the sessions I could, and when somebody'd call, want to know who to use, 
I'd refer them to David, and hell, it didn't let them guys took off in about 45 days. All of them were working all kinds of sessions. David called me one day and said, said, Bradley, I don't need your money no more. He said, I'm making the hell out of money. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, that's how those three guys got up there. And then uh, my dad started hearing demos around town with them playing. And they really became uh, second fiddle to the A team that was in Nashville. You didn't. You had two sets of rhythm sections. You could get you. You know what you. There, before you could just get uh, uh, the A team, which was Buddy Harmon, Harold, uh, Bobby Moore, Buddy. Well, Buddy Harmon, I said. But anyhow, you could get them. But then after that, you'd have to wait. But when David and these guys came to town, they, uh, you know, they were uh, very popular. In fact, Norbert told me uh, that my dad, oh, I read it in a book. Norbert had a book out. He said, my dad met with Norbert, and uh, he told him, he said, Norbert, he said, see, take these records and go home and learn how to play that bass like Buddy Hart, I mean, like uh, Bobby Moore, and I'll use you. And Norbert said, well, he called me right after that. And he said he said he wanted to hire me for a date, and I thought it was going to be a session. He said, hell, I found out it was his dance band. I had to go do <laughs> dance band. But he said, I learned how to play the bass, like he said, and you know, everything was great from then on. So uh, that's how Norbert got his lesson from Owen Bradley. Uh, I just learned that in the last, well, in the last year or two. Uh, but anyhow, everybody's, you know, and David played the piano and my dad played the piano. He had a lot of respect for how David played the piano. And David Briggs is, he is uh, just one of the greatest friends and greatest piano players around here. Uh, one time he was, I think it was Love Letters, Felton was cutting Elvis Presley. And uh, uh, Floyd Kramer used to play all Elvis's sessions and they couldn't get him. And so they called David to come over and, David and Elvis was playing. Uh, uh, David was playing the piano on Love Letters, and right at the beginning, there's a piano lick that David was doing, and Elvis liked it. And Floyd come flying in after doing whatever he was having to do, and he came in, and David, out of respect for Floyd, got up from behind the piano to the organ and Floyd sat down behind the piano and Elvis said no 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 said I want David said we've been working on this song for an hour <laughs> and uh, so he put David back on the piano and uh, uh, that's how David Briggs got his uh, job with uh, Elvis Presley there's a great, great uh, YouTube video I've seen of Mr. Briggs 
telling that story on there. And it's, it's, it's awesome how he tells it because he didn't think he was playing it good. And Elvis just loved it. Yeah, he did. That's right. And I love it too. Well, I Tra- love David Briggs. I'm telling you, I thanked him. And, you know, I did, I wasn't a musician and I could play the radio if I could find the plug. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I wasn't a musician. So I, I depended a lot on David. I was more like a coach, I guess. And I knew what I liked and I knew how to tell David what I liked. And then he would tell the rest of the guys. And that's how I made my records. I would find the songs and then I'd talk to David and we would, you know, we'd work up whatever we could do before we ever got there. Right. And, you know, it was just... It was just magic, you know, and again, I refer to it as being a coach. Like Fred Foster, Fred wasn't a musician, Shelby Singleton wasn't, and, you know, I'm proud to say that I wasn't, thank God. Uh, I might have been trying to play a guitar somewhere for $100 every three hours. Well, Jerry, what we want we want to get into the uh, the outlaw movement if we could, but we're going to take a quick break. If that's all right. all right. We're going to take a quick break, folks. Y'all are listening to the crossing. We got Jerry Bradley on the phone, um, Hall of 2019 Hall of Famer, record executive. Steve, let's go out with a little bit of that uh, Nat Stuckey great music that uh, Jerry and him <laughs> yes. produced, especially for Chris. A little plastic saddle for you folks. I've got a long black six-passenger limousine A palace in Dallas, a club down in New Orleans Diamonds on my fingers, silk imported clothes And I can tell a fast train by the way she blows So don't give me no plastic saddle Let me feel that leather when I ride Don't give me no paint and powder Honey, let me see the high false eyelashes and a false foundation. Hey, your favorite new song that recently hit the airwaves is now on the shelves, baby. So that means a trip to your favorite right record store, Jack's Record Shack in Lanier Village. At Jack's, you'll find all your favorite records and eight tracks. Now that's groovy. Bad sound on that turntable? Maybe it's time for a new needle or stylus. Go to Jack's Record Shack, baby. That's the place to go. So let us help you be like producer Steve and put the needle to the wax and head down to Jack's. That's Jack's Record Shack in Lanier Village. I can smell those great steaks now. Yep, that's Western Steer. The hallmark of the Steer is a great food at a great value. The Steer earned their reputation as America's Steakhouse for a reason. They serve great steaks. From choice aged sirloin to that tasty ribeye, every cut is hand-carved and grilled to perfection. And at $5.99 to $14.99, nobody can beat that price. And don't forget that great salad and dessert bar. That's the Western Steer, located off Ball Ridge Marina Road on Georgia 400. Transforming the way you listen to sports. Yep, we've covered all of it, at least since 1978, 79, 80, 81, 82... Okay, you get the point. We've got it covered. The North Georgia Sports League. 
go ahead. Like us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Keyword search, North Georgia Sports Link. Thank you for calling Village Cinema. Showing this week is Smokey and the Bandit, starring Mark Reynolds. Showtimes are 7 to 9 p.m. And Sundays, 3, 5, 7, and 9. Village Cinema, next to Gigi's and Lanier Village Shopping Center. 887-8855 for movies and showtimes. Thank you. Being a cowboy and loving the cowboy ways, pursuing the life of my high riding heroes. I burned up my childhood days. I learned all the rules of a modern day drifter. Don't you hold on? Take what you need From the ladies that leave them With the words of a sad country song My heroes have always been cowboys And they still are, it seems Sadly in search of one step and back on themselves and their slow-moving dreams. And we are back with the third and final segment of The Crossing, where the music meets memories. Coal Mountain Cal, my partner, Christopher Cheeto Cheatham. The good doctor, Steve Thomason, back there, turning dials and making smiles. And our special guest tonight, Mr. Jerry Bradley of Nashville, Tennessee. So, Jerry... We've covered a lot of it. We're back in. The, we're still in these RCA days, and of course, Chris and I both want to talk. We're because we're huge Wayland fans. We want to get to some of that stuff. But I was talking to you earlier when we were doing a little pre-production stuff. I was telling you how I was up in Nashville in '74 when the Opry moved out of the uh, Ryman into the new Opry House, and how my grandmother carried me out to see president nixon land at the nashville airport and you said you were you was pretty close to that scene too yeah i was sitting about three rows behind him did you say anything uh, to him did you tap him on the shoulder and say hey i'm jerry bradley <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you may know me he got up and played piano right yeah that got his yo-yo out <laughs> he got that you know he didn't I wasn't very impressed, but, <laughs> you know, he he did sit in front of me. A couple of Secret Service people were there, too, so. They didn't screen you before you came in, did they? No, they didn't. No, well, I'm sure they did, but I didn't know it. Now, they, the, over where they had popcorn and sold popcorn, they told me later on, Hal Dern told me that thing was full of uh Secret Service guys with long rifles in there waiting in case they had to come out of there. There was there wasn't no popcorn in there. It was full of Secret Service. So. No popcorn, yeah. just lead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
Now, me and Chris also did a podcast. I don't know, but it's been maybe a year, several back. We we did a, uh, we kind of dived into the story of the string bean murder back in 74, I think it was. What what kind of scene was going on in Nashville when all that was going on? You know, that was, I don't really remember other than he played the opera and he went home with yeah. his wife. And those guys were waiting on him. Had the whole city tore up pretty much, especially the entertainers, they yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, everybody's, yeah, it, it was, it was pretty dirty. Those guys, you know, didn't do them no favor and killed his wife, too. Yeah, we, the way we understood it, it was, uh, you know, you used to be able to just go to all the, uh, the little honks and restaurants and that kind of thing and see the, you know, the people that have just been on stage with Hee Haw or whatnot. And then that kind of come to an abrupt end. No. Made, made people more alert of their surroundings and stuff from that point on. Yeah. It kind of changed things around there. Yeah, I got, I think Porter probably got him a gun. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jerry, let's let's talk about your first meeting with, uh, with Waylon Jennings and, and how the outlaw movement kind of, surfaced itself in in nashville and and i guess you know just how that kind of came to be i well the first time i met him he was in a guy named wally cochran's office and they were arguing and i happened to walk in and Waylon started started cussing me <laughs> wally I, I could, I could carry on with you cussing a little bit myself. So, anyhow, I cussed him back. And I told him, I said, well, I said, I don't have to sit here and listen to you talk to me that way. If you want to talk to me that way, come on up to my office when you get through with Wally. <laughs> and so, anyhow, that was my first meeting with him. And then, as time went on, Waylon, we were selling about. 200,000 albums on Waylon, and Columbia had, uh, well, Jesse had a record, and Willie had a record, and Tom Paul had kind of a record, but Willie and Jesse had sold a million albums, and we were only selling about 200,000 on Waylon. And I called New York, and asked the legal department, did I have the right to put out uh, Willie Nelson and Jesse Coulter because they had been on the label, and did I have the right without getting permission to put those out? And did I have the right to put out anything Waylon had recorded over there without getting permission? And they said yes. And I wasn't getting permission from Waylon's manager was terrible. Yeah. I didn't get along with him at all. And so I told him what my idea was and he told me he'd get back to me and he went back and he come back and he said, oh, Waylon don't want to do it or I don't want to do it. And I said, well, here's the deal. I, I got the right to do it and I got a job over here to do, and if I do it and it's a success, uh, I'll have this job another year or two, and so I'm going to do it. And 
he went back and told Waylon, I guess, what I said. So anyhow, I went and I sent a guy named Bill Harris down the studio, and Bill was just a second man in the engineering department. And I said, Bill, go down there. And I marked off all these songs, and I said, put these songs and do me a, don't spend over 15 minutes mixing them and make me a tape of these songs and bring you back up here. And so he went in that night. He picked, he took those songs that I'd picked and he made 15 minute remixes and he brought them back up. And I started playing them. I said, damn, Bill, this, these things sound great. And I said, I told you not to spend over 15 minutes on them. He said, I did, too. He said, I promise I did. I said, okay. I said, man, these are great. And I used him as my mixing engineer after that. I've been, I used him on everything I ever did. <laughs> uh-huh. so, but anyhow, uh, he made them, and I played them, and uh, decided what I was going to do. And uh, I got the ones on Jesse, and uh, Tom Paul. Waylon called me and he said, well, if you're going to do it, can you put Tom Paul in there? And I said, well, it's two-way street. If that's what you want to do, yeah, I can put him in there. That's how Tom Paul got in there. I didn't really want him in there, but uh, Waylon did, and I thought, well, I'll put him in there. So anyhow, I had I went down to a guy that did all my album covers named Herb Burdette, and I went down there, and I had a, a, a Warner Brothers old Western book that they had. They were selling books. And I saw that poster in there, Wanted, Outlaws. And I went to him, and I said, I want, here's what I want. And I scratched that on a piece of paper, a square, and then I put Outlaws just slopped it on there and I drew uh, uh, four squares, one big one and three little ones. Told them to put Waylon's picture here and Tom Paul Willie and him there and write me some of that graffiti on the, you know, like that they do. And anyhow, I want parchment and he, he understood every bit of it and he made it up. And uh, I took it over to Waylon's when it came in, and Waylon's the kind of atmosphere he had. Waylon was sitting in his office with all of his hanger owners in there, and had he had a uh, ad we'd done on another album on the door, and I had to open the door and go in there, and they were throwing knives with the ad, <laughs> <laughs> sticking them in the door, and he grabbed the. I handed him the album. He passed it around the room. And finally he said, I'll bring it back up here. Give it back. And he brought it back up. The guy brought it back up to Waylon. He said, give it to him. He said, if that's what you want to do, Jerry, you can just do it. I, I don't need to get approval from anybody else. You just do it if that's what you want. So I took the album and I left. And uh, Anyhow, they... Backing up a little bit, well, they didn't really want to do it because anything I wanted to do, they had a better idea. It was one of them kind of relationships, right. mostly with his manager. And so uh, I told him one day, I asked the manager, 
Neil Reshin was his name, and I asked him, I said, Neil, how much money did y'all make last year? Did y'all make $3 million? <laughs> he said, yeah. Yeah, we made three. I said, guess what? I said, I made 50000 and if I put this album out, I'm liable to make 50000 for the next four or five years. <laughs> so it's coming out. <laughs> yeah. And that's how we got it out, and... Then I took, at one time, I took all of Waylon's albums and laid them out on the floor of my office and looked at them and tried to see what kind of image we were building for them. And kind of, you know, after that, I kind of tuned in on what the image would be. And and I told Waylon, I said, Waylon, if I'm going to put this one out, and I'll never put out another Outlaw album. I won't do it. You don't. You didn't want it, and I won't do it. And so then I put out the Waylon and Willie because I went back, and I said, man, I got to have something else. So I went and had the Waylon and Willie, and I had it stuck on a credenza behind me, and Waylon come in after he put out a couple of singles that didn't do too good. And he come in, and he said, Hoss, you he called me Hoss, said, Hoss, you got any more ideas? <laughs> I said, well, what do you think about this one? And I spun around, got, I already had the album cover made up, uh, what I thought it all looked like, and I pulled it out, and I showed it to him. He said, man, I like that. And I said, that was the Waylon and Willie album, the Boss album. <laughs> and anyhow, I, I talked him into putting that one out, and... Uh, Funny thing about that one is Willie had been on Columbia, and Columbia wanted to re-record all of Willie's albums, I mean, all of his songs, and they called me and wanted, and I needed, Waylon called me and told me, said, Jerry said, I can't sing harmony with uh, Willie, he has to sing it with me. And I said, well, I appreciate you trying. <laughs> and so uh, Rick Blackman called me and said, Jerry, can, uh, can we re-record these songs? And I called New York, and they could, in six years, they could re-record them. Didn't have to get no permission. So I told them, I said, yeah, uh, yeah, you can re-record them. I said, but I want two new ones, or three new ones, by Waylon and Willie. And he said, well, I'll do that. And I said, well, you can re-record anything you want to, and you give me permission to record three new ones with Willie. And he said, okay. Well, he had, in six months, or three months, he had the right to go ahead and re-record them anyhow. <laughs> so I kind of slipped one in there. <laughs> on Waylon did three songs, and they were all in the music business and drug songs. And he came back over and he 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 told me, he said, uh, you didn't sound like you liked them. You didn't look like you liked them. And I said, well, you could have done better, Waylon. And so he said, do you think you can sell any? I said, yeah, we can sell a couple hundred thousand. And he said, what do you think about this one? He sang, mamas don't let your babies grow up be cowboys. And I jumped up out of that seat. I grabbed him and I said, whatever you do, I said, you get your ass over to uh, the studio, throw one of those songs away and record this one. I said, that thing is a hit. And so uh, 
that's how uh, Mama's got recorded. Yeah. And, uh, he ought to know that was a hit song. I told him, I said, I hold Elma on hell it had goosebumps on it. I told him, I said, look here, you got, it was two people, Ronnie Millsap and Waylon Jennings. I don't remember the Millsap song, but put goosebumps on my arm. That's how much I liked them. So. And that, my friends, is how you make a the first million dollar million copies selling album, sure. The Outlaws, right. with Mister Jerry Bradley. And that yeah. is the rest of the story yeah. of the birth of the Outlaw Outlaws. movement. And I mean, they, there. that we've heard about yeah. our whole lives, and they even have a serious radio station called yeah. Outlaw. Now we got well, it firsthand. Now Waylon, he had like his. His bark was a lot worse than his bite sometimes, though, I think, once you got in his inner circle, wasn't he? he when he was with me, we never had a problem. When he got little crowd musicians or his lawyer, yeah, we had some big times. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, he, well, you know, if somebody didn't know what the hell they were doing, I did all right. You did all right. And, I, I, and going back to that, uh, that radio station, uh, the Outlaw, was that a, a station you dial up often? Um, uh, yeah, I dial it. Up. I do it. And I do with this place. And, you know, I, 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 hey, I'm looking for old country. Yeah, I'm with I, you, bro. I can't understand these boys <laughs> this year. I think it's turning around a little bit. Uh, I, they did something uh, during this virus problem. I heard him singing on the Grand Ole Opry, and I could understand the damn words. So <laughs> that ought to told you something. You hey, w- we want to pick your brain on one last. I mean, we could sit here all night and talk to him, and I may be calling you now that I got your number. I may call you about every other day. But anyway, <laughs> tell me about this 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 Alabama group that people talk about that you kind of stumbled up on. Well, uh, you know, the real thing is, I. I kind of analyzed a lot of things that radio was playing Porter, Dolly, Porter and Dolly, Floyd Kramer, uh, or an instrumental, and then they'd play a boy, and they'd play a girl, and then they'd play a duet. And that's kind of what they did, and they'd ring a bell, say, get up in the morning, it's time to milk the cows, or whatever. <laughs> I noticed that this jockey was changing, and you know, they were driving pickup trucks, nice ones, and Cadillacs, and dressing different. Anyhow, I thought, I need a, a, a group's name. I wanted a group's name. Uh, you know, I didn't want Charlie Daniels in band. I didn't, I just wanted a group. Right. And so, I'm going home, and I, I put the word out on Music Row, I was looking for a group, couple of people played me something. I wasn't interested in it. And I lived in Franklin, which was about 25 miles from Nashville. And I'm going home. I hear my homes in Alabama. And I said, oh, God, I, that's that's what I want right there. And they said it was Randy Owen in Alabama. I said, Harold Shedd was involved in that. And I called Harold next morning. I said, Harold. I said, I just heard uh, Alabama uh, on the radio. I said, can you bring me a copy? He said, Jerry, you got a copy. I said, I do. He said, where? He said, I don't know. I left one over there. So 
I found it and I called him back. I said, come on over here. So he came over and I said, he had a, uh, Atlas map of a mock-up of an album cover that had, uh, Alabama star on Birmingham or some crap. Anyhow, he showed it to me. And I looked at that and I said, well, Harold, I'll sign these old boys. Uh, but this album cover, we, if we have a hit, I, this album cover ain't going to make it. And I said, let me take it to my guy. That's how he come up with the Confederate flag. And I didn't think nothing about the Confederate flag. I just thought it was a piece of art. Right. The way it turned out. But, you know, back now everybody's fighting over it and everything. But I didn't feel that way about it. And so that's how it got on there. And, uh, anyhow, uh, he came over and Harold and I met. I told him, I said, Randy Owen, we need to get, we need Alabama. I want just Alabama. I, I, there's a place where the radio will play Alabama. I don't want Charlie Daniels and band and all that. I just want, and he said, okay. I, said, I drew it out, those two A's on Alabama. I was going to ask if you did the, the you did the logo. The yeah, the two, I, two A's. I told him, I said, that. That's what I want. I scratch that out on a piece of paper. Yeah, I went back. And the old boy had the Confederate flag there on the state of Alabama, and Alabama right across the top of it. And I couldn't wait to get out of there with it. But anyhow, that's how it got started. And uh, uh, you know, they wanted to that thing. That thing just took off when it got RCAC. You. People don't realize, I, you know, managers, people think that everybody thinks it's them. And I'm sure I thought it was me too, but I, I never did think it was me. I thought it was RCA. Right. RCA carried a whole lot of weight if you get your name on a RCA record. And I once told somebody, I don't remember who it was, because I mixed so many DECA records that I told somebody if uh, RCA could sell a DECA record, that I could make it as a producer because that's only my dad had taught me how to make a, a DECA record because I made so many of those. So I just talked what he taught me and went over and picked songs and did the production kind of like what he would have done. So... You know, that's that's kind of how how I got started, the shortcuts I took, and you know, I had a lot of fun doing it. You know, it was uh, you know, it, you get a number one record, and you know, you gotta you got up chasing the next one. Yeah. You know, I never did sit back and enjoy it like I really should have. I wish I could have, but I didn't. Well, we we definitely have. Yeah, <laughs> we enjoyed them for you. We, we've, we've enjoyed the fool out. You 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 uh, entertain a lot of people with that stuff over the years. That's cool how those stories and I mean, you were like the full package deal. You were producing. You was running RCA. You had the the vision of the artistic stuff, how it was presented, marketed. I mean, you were the full package. So you were yeah. a perfect fit for RCA back in those days. You got them. You were you really had them rolling. I did a little bit of all of it. 
they had a thing up here called leadership music and they took you around and did every aspect of the business and i was bored out my fanny because i'd done it all <laughs> <laughs> you know i i thought what in the world am i doing here hell <laughs> i've done all this and but anyhow, I, 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 I just knew enough to get in trouble. That, hey, sometimes trouble's the best time. So what what you got going on these days? What do you do in your retirement? I had uh, esophageal cancer, and that was – I went to Mayo Clinic, and they were able to uh, uh, get it out, and that was 11 years ago, so – I'm a cancer survivor. Uh, I, I used to be about 320 and I weigh about 130, now 235 now. And I don't do, I boat, I fish. Uh, I, you know, nobody, I used to say it about other people and nobody's interested in what I think. I think. Tom Collins, myself, Harold Shedd, I think we could go in and cut any record tomorrow and they would be good. But, you know, you just, you just, you're just an old man now. So <laughs> accept it and do whatever. I go to Florida a little bit and I got a place down there and I enjoy going down there in the winter. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I stay around it. My son's in it. He he runs BMI here in uh, Nashville. His name is Clay Bradley. And, uh, of course, Connie, my wife, she retired about two years after I did. And, uh, anyhow, we, we just... We just do what old people do. Do what you want. <laughs> do what you want to do. Now, do what you do. What you want to do. That's yeah. That's uh, trade cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so please, when you get the chance, go ahead and thank Miss Cecile for us for getting in, getting us hooked up because she she did a lot of legwork getting us connected with you. And I didn't know I, she's been with you for a long time. She's been with me for fifty something years. When I hired her. I don't know what I paid her, $125, and I told her, I'm going to give you 150 and that way if it don't work out, I won't feel bad about the fire. <laughs> I laugh about that all the time. Yeah. She seen- she's, been, she's been with me, and, uh, you know, she, she, she's like one of the family. I told her we were going to get her on the podcast because I know she's got some stories on oh, you that, that nobody knows. <laughs> she probably does. Yeah. She's a good one. I hear you. Well, Jerry, we can't thank you enough for letting us uh, take up a you know a little over an hour of your time tonight. We, we we really, really could talk, keep on. I could, I could spend an hour talking to you just about Jerry Reed, to be honest with you. Um, well, Give me, give me in about a week. Yeah, <laughs> let him rest up. If you need something, well, let me know. We told uh, Charlie McCoy the other day, once this pandemic blows over, we're coming to Nashville and we'd buy him breakfast. So once we get through with breakfast, buy you some hot we'll chicken. let you and Miss Connie cook us some chicken and dumplings and we'll come over there and we'll get one of them uh, big old glasses with a big old uh, ice cube in it and we'll sit out and light a cigar and talk about old times. Well, that'd be all right. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to talk to those guys in the next week, and 
see i really think from their perspective uh you might learn some. Yes, sir. You're talking about, about Tom Collins and uh, Harold Shedd. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be. We'll definitely be in touch. I don't want to wear you out because uh, I don't <laughs> want to be. Gonna, I don't want to be a bothersome to. Tell them to call you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got my number, but I lo- we love hearing these stories, and we sure do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so uh, much, folks. You've been listening right. to the uh, Crossing, where the music meets the memories. We've had Mister. Jerry Bradley, Country Music Hall, two in a row, Chris. Country Music Hall of Famer on tonight. I don't. I mean, we could probably just hang up the headphones and be done. <laughs> just, just drop the mic and walk out. For myself, Brother Chris Cheatham, the good doctor producer Steve Thomason, who has sat through here and just gave us thumbs up all night about how he loves these stories, and Mr. Jerry Bradley, we bid y'all a fond adieu, and we'll catch you next time on The Crossing. The Crossing, where music meets memories, is recorded at Due South Productions, high atop the northeast tower of Pete's Castle in South Coal Mountain, Georgia, and is recorded and mixed by Steve Thomason, hosted by Coal Mountain Cal Hurd and Chris Cheatham. Theme music, written, performed, and recorded by Wendell Cox. The Crossing is a production of Roadhog Music and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Due South Productions or at least a text message from Coal Mountain Cal's Razor Phone. That'll work too. All rights reserved. All right, we'll catch you next time right here on The Crossing.